is the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast, where I am your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you to the show. I welcome you to the show. I welcome you to the show. On today's show, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Stephen Peters. Dr. Stephen Peters, welcome to the Equity Experience Podcast. Hi, Carla. Great to be here. Thank you. I'm glad to have you. So we're going to go ahead and just jump right on into the conversation, Stephen. So if you can, just introduce yourself to us and tell us about the work that you do. Okay. My name is Dr. Stephen Peters. I've been in public education for almost 20 years. Majority of my work has been in urban schools. I've been a teacher middle school teacher. That's how I started my career. I went on to be a school administrator, assistant principal in Newark, New Jersey for multi-campus high school. And then I did some uh, nonprofit work in which we still did the work of supporting urban schools. And today, as I did previously, after going back to the principalship, having coached principals and then going back to the principalship because I found that really exciting and enjoyable. I'm now coaching principals in Tennessee. So mm-hmm. doing traveling and coaching a cohort of principals of high need schools and helping to inform education and learning, teaching and learning for them through development of leaders, both principals, assistant principals, other teacher leaders. Excellent. Excellent. And I know that this wasn't a part of the, <laughs> the conversation, but can yeah. you, in your opinion, can you unpack high needs schools? I think that is a term that we hear a lot in the educational space and people may have different or there may be competing definitions. So would you mind just giving your definition of how you see a high need school? Yeah, I would define a high need school where there is a high number of students. I would say 50 plus percent of students who are in the communities and are living in poverty, right? Mm-hmm. Or below the poverty line. A high need school is also where success rates of students academically have been particularly challenged mm-hmm. as a result of a number of factors, often as a result of poverty, a lack of access to adequate resources, as a result of the dysfunction of the school itself, the district, and even just because of the community they're in. You know, when you're in um, higher poverty communities, there's also a challenge with the allocation of resources for students, for children. And also children's starting points, comparison to their counterparts, tend to be years behind, even if they're entering school at kindergarten at the same time and and at the same age as students who are more affluent or have more resources. And so those all contribute to a school becoming a high-need school. I don't think it's one factor. I think it's a variety of factors that create that, that situation, that dynamic for students. Okay, okay, okay. Thank you for that. So let's turn to your work, Dr. Steven. You recently completed uh, your PhD and your dissertation was about Black fathers, their learning experiences, and the impact on the development of children's lives. So if you can, can you just share with us why you decided to study Black fathers in urban communities? And then what's the relationship between Black fathers and their children's learning experiences? You know, or stated another way, you know, what led you to doing a specific or researching a specific topic on the impact of Black fathers and their children's lives? Yes, I just finished. It was exciting. Finished in March, which was 
a great relief. And congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I've been working through it for six plus years on this project. And so I received my EDD and from Northeastern. And so mm. it was really exciting, dynamic experience. Love my department chair. Shout out to Dr. Ewell, okay. uh, William Ewell, who was a resource to me in my journey. But I decided to focus on Black fathers, particularly Black fathers in urban communities. One, because I'm an urban kid. I'm a product of cities, right? Mm. Often when you think of cities, you people jump to this notion of poverty. You automatically assume someone is urban or urban schools, and you're thinking about poverty. You think about Black men, uh, Black fathers, and you talk about urban. You take those two terms together, and people automatically make assumptions and say, oh, you must be talking about poor people, right? Mm. And so part of it was, as being a product of an urban community, having a father who was very much involved in my life. And yes, we were from a working class to working middle class kind of family. Mm. Um, but there were definitely times, you know, I lived in an apartment building with crack addicts sitting on the front steps, mm. right? Mm. And so, but also lived in uh, environments where we didn't experience that. So mm. Edward Glacier, from his book, Triumph in the City, he talks about cities being rich, and attracting, yes, attracting poor people because it represents a space where you can have the highest level economic growth, right? But also, it's, cities are also rich places that are rich in diversity, the cross-section of people culturally, economically, socially. And so I wanted to really get a sense of the identity of Black men in the urban context. The other part of that was, really, I wanted to dispel. Okay, selfishly, honestly, mm. I wanted to dispel some of the assumptions about Black men and Black fathers who are living and raising their children in the urban context. A lot of it is also the assumption that Black fathers are not involved in the lives of their children, right? Popular narrative will cause us to believe that when you think about Black men in communities, that there's a lack of involvement in comparison to their white counterparts. And that's just simply not the case, right? And so I wanted to see if, in fact, it was true that were Black fathers involved in the learning lives of their children in ways that contradicted popular narratives of Black men. Mm. So then with your research, what has your research led you to conclude about Black fathers and their role in children's learning experiences? Yeah, I found a lot of interesting things about that. Black fathers overall were informed in a variety of ways in their learning. The participants and the men who participated in my work with me in this investigation, in this study, really communicated that there were three core things that shaped their role in the learning life of their children, right? There was fathering values, it was an academic worldview, and it was forms of learning engagement. Those were really three things that showed themselves in my interviews of these fathers in Newark, New Jersey. And if you talk about fathering values, that was really encompassed three elements their definition of what it meant to be a father, the influential figures and models in their lives who impacted them in their youth before becoming fathers. And it also entailed this aspect of, let me get my train of thought, forms of learning engagement, the ways in which they engage in the learning experiences of their children. So you had this fathering values, academic worldview, and forms of learning engagement, all of which were crucial in the development of who they were and what they did in the learning life of their children. Absolutely. Would you mind unpacking a bit the third aspect, your third finding, the one where they really thought about the ways that 
black fathering shows up in the actual learning experiences. Sure, absolutely. So we found that in my research, really found that black fathers uh, exhibited something called two big things that really stuck out for me, strategic involvement and process coaching, right? They also had a significant level of school level interaction, but the two areas where they stood out the most was strategic involvement and process coaching, right? Those are really two new terms I'm bringing to the literature around father involvement. When you talk about forms of learning engagement, the majority of the fathers, they exhibited a high level of engagement in their children's learning life. And that was a result of the experiences that they had when they were children. They were very specific people. They identified all the men, identified either father or father figure who was very influential in shaping their beliefs about learning Mm. and shaping their practices around learning. And in all the seven of the 10 named their fathers as influential figures, but they also identified other men. In cases where the men named their moms as influential figures in their learning experiences when they were younger, they also named men. So mm. it's very interesting that those men that named their moms also tended to name more than one other man who was influential in shaping their values and fathering and their beliefs around learning. Even if that other man was not their particular father. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In those cases, there were instances where the father was a coach or Mm -hmm. a mentor Mm -hmm. that they actually came in contact to even in their early 20s, but really Mm -hmm. started to shape. It was before they were parents. It started to shape their worldview around learning. But most Mm -hmm. often, along with their father, it was another teacher. It was an advisor. It was a coach, someone who really that, that modeled for them particular practices and values. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good segue into another question. So then what is the role of Black male teachers in urban classrooms, particularly Black male teachers who may serve as these role models or coaches, if you will, for Black boys? You know, what role do they play? Yeah, I think, you know, Black men in schools and if they're teachers, they definitely need to see themselves as leaders of instruction in their classroom, but they also need to be willing to see themselves and be open to the notion that they might be seen as surrogate fathers. What really spoke to me as I did this work and even reflect on it now was as a middle school teacher teaching seventh grade, I remember we use the word ear hustling, right? (laughs) But I remember hearing a few students talking. I think I'd kept them up for a project and I'm doing my work, they're doing theirs. And I heard this one young man, oh, Mr. Peters is like my uncle. Oh, Ms. Peters is like my dad, right? Mm. And they didn't think that I can hear them, but mm. I'm listening to them having their own seventh grade conversation in their own little huddle. Right. And it, it dawned on me that the impact I was making was more than just being a teacher teaching content. Mm. I was actually doing really hard work, right? Mm. They saw an investment of myself into them in ways that went beyond just teaching them literacy and social studies. And so I think as Black men in classrooms, we need to, yes, we're in schools to change the learning trajectory of students, but part of that learning trajectory is also the social-emotional presence that they bring, who they are in terms of how they are to young people in Mm -hmm. schools. So it's both. It's not something you can separate. It's something that you get pulled into by the very nature of being a Black man teaching children, particularly children of color, where they may not have as many men 
who are models for them what success looks like, Mm -hmm. what it looks like to have someone who's in front of them every day communicating to them in a positive way, someone Mm -hmm. who is actually teaching them. And all of the men in my research, for them, the role of teacher, the role of provider, they were interchangeable. They were connected. They were not separate roles. And so when you think about a man as a teacher in the classroom, a Black man in the classroom, the role of teacher can't be separated mm-hmm. uh, from the role of provider. Because in, in the case of my work, the, wor- the role of provider really bucked against the traditional aspect and perception of provider. It wasn't about breadwinning. It was about emotional connectedness. It was about being a support, someone that they can depend on. These are key terms that the men in my study brought up as what they considered to be a provider. It had very little to do with money had more to do with active presence. I like that. And so Black men who are in classrooms need to realize that active presence speaks loudly and sometimes even louder than the content, right? I see. Yeah. Just by them physically being there and the students seeing them and being able to interact with them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, thank you for that, Steve. That was very, very insightful findings that you shared with us. And as you were talking, you know, I I couldn't help but think about then the role of policy. And I'm specifically thinking of President Obama's initiative, My Brother's Keeper. Mm -hmm. And here in New York City, we have the Men Teach Initiative within CUNY. You know, so can you speak about the role that policy plays, uh, state, local and federal policymaking plays in this whole narrative, this whole context of Black men, Black fathers and their relationships with teaching and learning? Mm, well, there's a couple of things that I think definitely we don't consider the role of policy around schools, right? One of the things that I recommend in my work is that schools really pay attention to engaging fathers deliberately. The fathers that I worked with and that I interviewed, all of them had high levels of engagement with their child's teachers. And they utilized a variety of forms of technology to do that. They were very technology heavy. I had a few fathers who were not shy at all with coming on FaceTime, right, Mm -hmm. to address their son or daughter about a behavior change that needed to happen so they can focus on their work. They they text pretty often. They made themselves accessible if there was a need, not just because something was going wrong, but they wanted to be kept up to date about their child's progress academically. And so they didn't want to leave any room for excuse for why they couldn't be contacted. And I think a large part of that had to do with their own experiences. They had been, for the most part, the most of the fathers had been in relationships with influential figures where the expectation was was that they were going to succeed, even if their own parent didn't go to college. But they had set before them the expectation that they would be doing well in school. And that college was not a choice, right? It was something that they needed to be thinking about doing, that they needed to do. You were going to be successful. You're going to move forward in your career. And so we think about the kinds of expectations that these fathers receive from people who were influential figures. For them, we need to be thoughtful about what we expect and what we um, make fathers privy to in the learning experiences of their children, right? Mm -hmm. That these fathers are setting high expectations for their children. You might not see them often, but are you creating space for them to be involved in the life of their child's school? And one of the things that in terms of just practice, right, or policy, kind of school direct policy is 
what kind of a parent engagement program do you have? I remember as principal of a school, when I was a principal, uh, in one of my principalships, we had a program, a nationally recognized program, actually, where fathers came and they were part of their child's learning day every day. So I had fathers sign up and they were able to come in and have a day of service. So we would have weeks where we had some father, some child or a father figure go to classrooms and help with tutoring, be there during lunch duty, be in the hallways greeting students, really seeing fathers as a resource, right? Mm-hmm. A creating space where they can have tangible impact on young people. I think that's something that schools and school districts need to revisit and not lean on the negative assumptions and perceptions of fathers, particularly Black men in urban communities, where often the assumption is that the father is uninvolved or not interested or it won't be available to engage in that way. You'd be surprised how many how the impact and influence of a child on their father to say, oh, dad, come and volunteer at my school, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. <laughs> or my dad can't come. Can my uncle come? Yes, mm-hmm. can, mm-hmm. right? We've had students where they've had an older brother who was mm-hmm. only one to do it, right? Because that person represented for them someone they looked up to as a surrogate father. And in turn, what it did was create pictures. My concern and my vision mm. was to create pictures in the lives of other young people who may not have had men in their lives and in their schools and in their classrooms, because I had a lot of white female teachers. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the experience of having a man of color uh, have an influence in their learning life in some capacity. Mm-hmm. It created pictures for them of what they wanted to be, right? Absolutely. I wanted to create pictures for them of what they should be and could be in the life of their own children. Absolutely. Powerful. You know, I'm glad that you touched on the last part. And what I heard from you was that schools and school districts have to let go of these limiting assumptions that Black fathers are not involved, that Black fathers are absent, and that People need to be intentional about creating specific programs and avenues for Black fathers to be involved in the school and in the decision-making within the school. Absolutely. And I would say a few more things about that. In terms Mm -hmm. of school policy, you know, a lot of curriculum is digitized. And so just making sure that dads in particular have access to the curriculum resources that are being given out to students that they can access from home, right? Mm -hmm. You have plenty of situations where fathers may not be living in the same house with their child, but what you are doing when you provide them with direct access to some of those digital resources, like you would with the parent that the child lives with, if it is just mom, you're actually creating another touch point for that father who wants to be actively involved in the learning life of his child to be able to do so because he's got access to the same resources. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so being very deliberate about making sure that that father knows how to log on to that math website or to that math curriculum resource that you're using or that literacy curriculum resource that you're using. Those, Those sound like little steps, but they also help to reinforce what fathers are often doing which is being very strategically involved in the learning life of their child. And teachers and school leaders and district leaders, for that matter, have a critical role in making sure those things are available. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I would also add, when you talk about policy, there is another element of policy that we need to pay attention to, and Mm -hmm. that is the criminal justice system. I was about to ask. I was just about to ask. Absolutely. Go ahead, please. So you have situations in which fathers not allowed to see their children Mm -hmm. because they're not up with child support or 
Um, or they may be incarcerated. They may be incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And so you recognize that there's a preponderance of men of color, and the research tells, will show you that the preponderance of men of color who are incarcerated for low-level offenses. Mm -hmm. And so we as a nation need to revisit the criminal justice system mm -hmm. and what we're locking men of color up for mm -hmm. in comparison to the white counterparts who are imprisoned for similar offenses for far less time. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that, you also have to consider that, wow, if these Black men were not incarcerated to like their white counterparts are not incarcerated for similar offenses, they would be far more accessible to their children yep. and be able to be a resource to their children, right? And that's for fathers and father figures. And so I think we need to rethink about what our values are with criminal justice, the kind of penalties we give for low-level offenses, and we need to be mindful that every time we lock up a man of color, we are also holding captive children, mm, right? Because what the criminal justice is in essence doing is making sure that children don't have access to their fathers or mm. father figures who can then have a tremendously positive impact on their learning trajectory. Mm. The research tells you that when fathers are involved and father figures are in live, involved in the lives of children, that children do tremendously well in school that they overcome barriers to alcoholism mm. and possible drug abuse, that they avoid instances of premature parenting where they become parents before their time mm. because they've had the access to influential men who have to shape their worldview, right? It goes back to that worldview. Absolutely. Um, and that's critical. And it, we also make assumptions that because someone's done something wrong, and yes, people have committed crimes, that then now they're bad people, who can't add value to even the learning life of their children. Yes. And so you'd be tremendously surprised about the number of brilliant people who are behind bars because they made a mistake and because the criminal justice system has made a decision to incarcerate that person for long periods of time, then they're missing large segments of life with their children. Powerful. And as you were talking, Steve, I thought about another question. And I'm thinking about, and I don't know if you're familiar with the scholar Umar Johnson. Mm -hmm. And people have uh, <laughs> lots, lots of different views and perspectives on him. Yeah. But one thing that he says a lot that I agree with wholeheartedly, you know, he really breaks down and really attacks the concern of Black boys labeled as ADHD and special ed. And he flips that on his head and he says that ADHD really should stand for ain't no daddy at home disorder. Mm -hmm. And that when, when Black fathers are in their child's life, that one, that can decrease the representation and the disproportionality of Black boys being in special ed and being labeled as having learning disorders. And then that can also decrease their chances of Black boys being on medication for these disorders. So do you care to speak about how the quote unquote ain't no daddy at home disorder compared to fathers actually being at home and what that actually looks like. Yeah, I can speak to it in a very concrete way in terms of father practice, right? Mm -hmm. Something that my research found was this, and this answers the question, was this notion of process coaching, mm -hmm. where fathers not only help their children navigate a difficult task, a difficult assignment that they were given, whether it was in English or whether it was in math, but they help their children overcome and process the emotional frustration attached to the task, mm. right? Usually when children, when someone's given something difficult, whenever a child was given a difficult task to complete, when the father also unpacked for them 
how they need to think about the task, mm. their children were able to overcome it with a lot more success, right? And so if you think about what the father is able to do in this practice of process coaching, right? And what his absence from the life of his child has on his child, the impact it has on his child because he's not able to do that work. Mm. So fundamentally, what happens with special education is time is not taken with students to really understand what it is that they're struggling with and why they are struggling with it, right? Mm. Both the task itself, but how they're thinking about the task. That's mm. something that a father does. That's a new term around that we're do, using a lot more in education where we're talking about helping to build resilience with students and helping them to unpack something, help their metacognition. We're paying more attention to that now, but fathers have been doing that for the longest time, right? And so when you talk about special education, you realize that you have to ask yourself the question, has an investment been made in helping to unpack why the child is feeling the way they are feeling about a task, Mm. not just completing the task itself? So again, it goes back to not just the pedagogy, right? But it goes back to how students are adjusting to the pedagogy, helping the the teacher unpack the barrier, right? That's keeping the child from connecting with the work. And so that's not done very well in schools. So we quickly want to label a child because we don't want to do the other layer, which is I need to get to the, and quite frankly, I need to get to the heart of the the root, Right, right. Yeah. The root cause is not they don't understand the content. The root cause could be the fear of the content, right? Mm. And how you approach it. So when you understand, and that helps you understand the child's learning style. Absolutely. Right? That's the learning style issue. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Good. That was very good. So then if you can, Stephen, can you maybe give us, what have been some of your implications of your work? You know, and I feel like you touched on this throughout our conversation, but do you have any specific implications, specifically even for district leaders, for principals, Mm. people who are really in the position of creating and ensuring policies around teaching, around learning? Yeah, I think principals and school districts, but I think principals do need to be more deliberate. And you see a lot of the literature now talking about the role of Black male teachers. That's becoming very popular in our literature over the last few years Mm -hmm. and in the press. I would say, yeah, do the work helping to integrate your staff. Mm. The majority of teachers, over 83% of teachers are white and female, particularly at the elementary level. And so my study, my work really focused on that body of students, of young people between the ages of five and 11, where that's where you see the majority of white female teachers. In urban schools, and in more affluent schools in suburban areas, Mm -hmm. right? But do the work looking for and hiring more Black males, particularly when you have a community of students of color, Mm -hmm. right? And your community of students of color is growing because your students need access points. They need people and adults that they can identify with culturally as we're finding that the cultural aspect of a child's learning is just as important as the cognitive aspect Mm. of a child's learning. They go hand in hand. They can't be separated. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some of your current projects and some, perhaps some programs and activities that you have going on now that may involve this work or or that may be related? Yeah. I'm going to add one more thing about the recommendation. Absolutely. Please. 
I think another recommendation for practice is really making sure that Black teachers are given some more professional development mm. around being social-emotional supports to Black boys, right? Particularly Black boys in schools. My work really focused on the role of influential figures in the life of fathers and how that impacted who they were in the life of their children. The majority of the men named other men. Mm. And so I think it's important for men in the classroom to really be primed and supported in how they can be emotional and social supports to Black boys in their classroom. Now, what about if you have a Black male teacher? And I think that's an excellent point. But, you know, I think about people who I know who are Black male educators. What if they say, you know... I just want to teach. I didn't sign up to be a surrogate father. I may have my own daddy issues that I have not resolved. And now a principal Mm -hmm. is wanting me to almost be a surrogate father and really think about this in the context of teaching. You know, I don't want to do that. You know, I think about, I was a teacher at an Afrocentric charter school in Chicago, and we had to refer to each other as mamas and babas. So I was Mm -hmm. Mama Carla. You know, you would have been Baba Steven. And I remember someone said to me, and this was a Black man, he said, you know, I don't like that. (laughs) I don't like other kids calling me Baba X, you know, because I don't want other kids to think that I am their father. I don't even want to even have that association, none whatsoever. Can you speak to that? Do you have any opinions about that? Right. I think that you cannot control the definition or the term a student gives you. If in their mind, they see you as a father figure or as a Mm. big brother or as an uncle, right? Because of who you are to them Mm. in a positive way. I don't think you can define that. And I don't think you should try to define that or stop that. That is that own young person's processing uh, from a social aspect, what you're being to them that's adding value to their life. Mm. So Mm. I think you as the male teacher need to be focused on, am I communicating care in my relationship to the students in my classroom, Mm. right? Because you have curriculum and you have care. You need Mm. to do both. So you need curriculum and you need care. And so if you're coming to the table genuinely caring about the students before you, let the students unpack however they're identifying you in the way that communicates the value you add to them in the positive way. Mm -hmm. That's their narrative. Mm. No one's asking you to be their father, but be Mm. prepared to know that the work will require you to make an emotional investment Mm. and to demonstrate a level of care for the individual student, for those individual boys and girls, Mm. uh, socially and emotionally. Hands down, you just just can't escape it. Yeah, yeah. I know someone who did not really have a relationship. This is a, a Black man who's an educator and he did not have a relationship with his father. And I suggested to him to read a book by T.D. Jakes called He Motions. Mm, and yes. I know it. And he took me off of my recommendation. He read the book. And he said that the first thing that he did after he read the book was initiate a conversation with his father. Mm-hmm. And he had not done that. He did not plan on doing that. He did not have any intention on speaking to his father because his father, you know, pretty much bailed. But he said after he read that book, that that was something that spoke to him, that touched his heart, was for him to take the initiative to reignite 
that relationship between him and his father. And as you were talking, I, I thought about that. And I thought about how the role of Black fathers, either Black fathers, Black boys, young Black adults, Black male adults, or Black male teachers, how there may come a, a time where that individual has to reconcile emotions, has to reconcile forgiveness, trust. You know, ha- there may have to be some reconciliation that needs to take place in order to authentically move forward. Absolutely. And that, that's actually part of academic worldview, mm. right? So mm. something that we found was a part of an individual's academic worldview were their own historical experiences with that father, right? Mm. Or that father figure. So even when, as they were raising their own children, engaging in the learning life of their children, the fathers in, in my study were always comparing and contrasting their experience with their father or father figure to what they wanted to be to their child, even mm-hmm. when their father wasn't what they are to their children. Yeah. And for the most part, the fathers in my work, they were a lot more hands-on than their own father, right? Mm-hmm. Because they wanted to be more than what their father was to them. And in a number of cases, their own fathers did a significant amount of work in helping to elevate their children's academic life, right? And their own learning goals as children. But they saw that they were so much more that they could do in the present. So they were always toggling between the two. So to your point, yeah, that unfinished work as a man in the classroom is you're going to inevitably have to do that, right? Because now you're in a man in front of a, a classroom of students who may very well see you as somebody that they are in their mind seeing you as a father figure. But more importantly, you're somebody as well who is shaping their understanding of what it means to be a learner. Absolutely. You're not able to separate that from being a man who's doing that Mm -hmm. in the life of a boy or a girl. And, And the life of a boy or girl who has the power to make that connection for him or herself that has Absolutely. nothing to do with the teacher. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. So Stephen, this has been an excellent conversation. If people want to stay, oh, but you didn't, I, I asked you about your current projects or activities. Do you have any projects or activities or programs going on now that support this work or that may be related to this work? That yeah, like? this is actually it. As someone told me oh, recently, he's like, Steve, you need to take the show on the road. for <laughs> like. <laughs> Um, really, for me, I want to elevate the narrative of fathers, right, in, the, in urban context as it relates to supporting and the work they do to elevate the learning lives of their children. And so mm-hmm. for me, this podcast is very much a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. I am working on publishing a children's book, which okay. really um, is about a young man who looks for somebody who was like him, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of the story is essentially that his, it is his father who helps him realize that there is nobody like him, right? Mm-hmm. And so I really continue to build upon the work of amplifying the voice of the father mm-hmm. in the life of children and what he does to really shape their academic worldview and what they will eventually become to the children in their own lives when they become adults. If you want to follow me, you certainly can follow me on Twitter. It's greatdefender06. So that's G-R-E-A-T, Defender, D-E-F-E-N-D-E-R-06, Great Defender 06. And certainly if you want to know more about my research and its implications for your work as a school or school district, 
feel free to reach out to me at stephenvpeters at gmail. That's Stephen with a P-H, stephenvpeters at gmail.com. I certainly would love to talk to you more about that and share the message. I think it's really important that we have a very clear understanding of the role of Black men in the lives of their children, particularly in our cities, our large cities and our urban communities, and really give our fathers the credit that's due them and to understand that communities need men, whether they are fathers or surrogate fathers, to be a part of that transformational work in the life of children. Excellent, excellent. Well, Stephen, it has been a pleasure having this important and necessary conversation with you. I am so glad you decided to come onto the show and talk about your research and your perspectives. Thank you so much. Glad to be here, Carla. Appreciate the invite. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast, where I've been your host, Dr. Carla Manning, where our guest, Dr. Stephen B. Peters, has talked about his understanding of Black males and their role with children that they work and live with. So thank you for listening. Stay tuned for another episode. Be well and be blessed. Mm -hmm.